Hello and welcome back to the Wannabe Inklings. I'm Dusty and today uh, we're going to basically wrap up this series with what could be seen as the beginning of the series. You know the Bible does say the last will be first and so we're just trying to mirror that here. So we're going to take some time just to talk through what covenants are um, what are the main covenants that we see in the scripture? Uh, some of you listening, this may all be brand new to you. So uh, you have the benefit of some uh, reformed dispensationalists kind of also still grappling with covenant theology as well. Uh, covenant theology is not my first language. So uh, if you're coming at it from that perspective as well, I'm with you. But as I said in a previous episode... Um, this has just been the, as, as I've gone deeper into scripture um, and wrestled with a text and, and tried to take the full counsel of scripture, this is systematically what, what seems true and um, what I believe the Spirit is progressively revealing um, and, and confirming in me as well. The good news is that we're not alone. This has primarily been what the church has believed throughout history. So that being said, there's a great wealth of resources on the covenants, what they are specifically. So this is, again, just an introduction. This is not an exhaust exhaustive discussion of any of those. There's plenty of resources out there that go into great detail about what the covenants are, what the signs of the covenants are, um, as well as the history of how covenants worked in the ancient Near East. We're going to get into just a little bit of that today. Um, so, without further ado, let's all introduce ourselves um, once again. So tell us who you are, and uh, tell us a covenant that you'd like to make. Oh my gosh. You know, I just, I really, this is David, by the way. Uh, I just really love these little intros. So, a covenant that I would like to make. Um, I actually, the covenant that I would like to make is one I already made when I married my beloved wife. Aww. Isn't that sweet? Yeah, she's going to listen to this later. Um, but yeah, that, that was, I made a covenant with her. Richer or poor, sickness and health. Love always. Sometimes that's not easy, I'm going to be honest. And sometimes it's not easy to deal with me. So, that's a covenant I made. And isn't that, isn't that really the greatest covenant you could possibly make? I mean, you know, I'm just saying. So now I'm going to turn it over to some single people who have not made that covenant. Uh, yeah, hello, my name is Dustin. A covenant I would like to make. Um, I don't, I don't know. Uh, I wasn't prepared for this question. Dusty just kind of hit us with it. Jerk. Um, a covenant I would like to make. Uh, I, I, I think I want to buy a house one day. So, a covenant, the contract of signing the house. And I also want to be married one day, Lord willing. I'll probably be like 50 by that point. But, yeah, that, those are those are my answers. This is Nicholas. Um, David always likes to rub in that uh, we're we're not yet married. And listen, the thing is, is I tried. I got real close, David. 
And you always bring it up. You always bring it up. Anyway, I would like to try that again one day, maybe more successfully. Um, sounds like I've been divorced. Have not been divorced. <laughs> um, but also, um, uh, a covenant of grace for a Tesla would be nice. That's, that's, that's tender. That's real tender. Yeah, an unconditional electric car sounds wonderful. I would like a covenant of grace regarding coffee. Um, so. I would also like to point out, um, that when I make jokes to you, uh, Nicholas, about, about this, um, I, I actually don't bear in mind, um, those things. And I should, I should be more aware because I know that you're not like super sensitive and it's not really deeply hurtful. Although you probably say it is just to, <clears throat> just to get a, a one up, but I, I'm sorry. I really, I actually really am. Cause I don't, I don't think of that when I say that. And that's really kind of inconsiderate, really. I want this to be heard from a distance for effect. Oh, it hurts. <laughs> it hurts, Dave. Did I not call it? Everyone who's listening right now, as long as Dustin doesn't edit this out, go back a few seconds when I said, you're probably going to say it does. Um, so that, I'm just saying. It I doesn't it. bother me. I just like to make people feel bad for making me feel bad. <laughs> right, also. Retribution. <laughs> also, I mean... Well, he already said it doesn't. It doesn't bother him. I don't. Somehow, I got pegged as the jerk of the group. I don't. I don't know how. Anyways, <laughs> which don't. Mm. <laughs> I think you do. I, I'm kidding. <laughs> Anyways, I was gonna say that you know Nicholas has got the 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 gift of uh, mercy, which entails a lot of empathy. So he he like feels a lot of things very deeply, and you should really be you know consider of that david before asking questions and making dustin, statements like dustin that. how many times have i heard you say about shh, different things shh, I, li- I just we're don't not, care actually we're, we're not we're not gonna i'm changing as a person that's okay? true we are all changing as um, people we'll wrap up this this section but i just want to say uh, dustin is right however i only uh, allow myself to feel other people's feelings and and usually not my <laughs> and own suppress your own <laughs> <laughs> And that's a good last word from our resident Enneagram 4. <laughs> and as your resident uh, therapist, you're all getting appointments. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, you laugh, but um, actually. I'll text you the schedule. Yeah. So, okay, let's, uh, let's transition into some, uh, some more covenant talk. Um, I always like to throw those questions out as, again, your resident therapist. It's my job to know how to ask questions that get conversation going, so you're welcome. So, all right, uh, let's talk a little bit more uh, concretely about some covenants here. We've spent a lot of episodes talking about Israel, and just a reminder, the reason we do that is not to be political or controversial it's because israel really is one of the if not the main points of intersection and uh disagreement between the camps of the dispensationalist and the camps of the covenant theologians so we always bring that out um just to to make that comparison so let's talk a little bit about what are the covenants 
we uh, are talking about covenant theology. So what are the covenants by which we are getting this theology? Um, I'm going to let David say a little bit more in detail about what covenants are, period. But just to introduce where we're going with all of this, covenant theology maintains that there are two or sometimes three broad covenants under which the several covenants we see in Scripture fall. The first, um, I'll kind of go chronologically, the first is the covenant of redemption. Some people believe in this, some people don't. Um, it's really more of a, I shouldn't say some people, some covenant theologians, I shouldn't say they don't believe in it as much as they don't necessarily talk about it or feel like it's irrelevant to discuss. But this is the idea that the the Godhead, the three persons, the Trinity, made uh, among themselves a covenant to redeem a people. And so this is uh, kind of an eternity past before the foundation of the earth. The agreement was made already. Uh, Jesus was slain before the foundation of the earth, that sort of thing. That In the eternal counsel of God, this agreement was made to bring uh, redemption to fruition. Uh, of course, dispensationalists don't believe in this at all, um, just generally speaking. If they do believe in that, they're not technically speaking dispensationalists. Um, so, again, everybody's different, but <clears throat> that's the first one, um, is that eternal covenant made among the Trinity. Then we see in the garden with Adam uh, as the representative, we have a covenant of works. Essentially, this is what it sounds like. They were given commands, one specifically, which was to refrain from eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Uh, and that's it. That's really the only thing they couldn't do. Everything else, um, they kind of had free reign over. Now, they were given other instructions to rule over the earth, to subdue it. Uh, they were basically stewards of the earth that God had created. But the common, the traditional understanding of this covenant of works was that if Adam had continued in this and had refrained from eating of the tree, that God would have given them eternal life. There's some debate about this because, of course, the uh, traditional Reformed, uh, you may say Calvinist, the, the predestination view of this is that if God made a covenant of redemption, he knew and had always planned that there would be a fall, that there would be sin by, from which we needed to be redeemed. So it kind of seems conflicting that there was this kind of trial period. We won't get too much into that. Um, we talked a little bit about that last season. Um, but I think it will suffice to say that at least part of this kind of goes to the mystery of, of God. Uh, we just have to take the full counsel of what Scripture says. It says both that he gave this clear command to Adam, but also that Christ was slain before the foundation of the, of the world. So we know that his d disobedience was not a surprise to God. But at the same time, um, he did not clearly give an asterisk when he gave that command either. I will point out, though, this is not an original thought of mine. I heard someone else say this, but if Adam had obeyed, 
and had refrained from eating from that fruit, from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and had continued in, in God's commands under the covenant of works. Although it may sound like he is being saved by works, this ultimately would have been an act of faith, because it would be faith in God. And faith here, uh, when you hear me use the word faith, I'm very specific to point this out. When I say faith, I mean faithfulness. I mean connection. I mean what the disciples said when Jesus had told his followers, if you don't eat my flesh and drink my blood, you can't be my disciple. And they were all grossed out and walked away, except for his disciples. When he turned to them, they gave him a hard time for being so weird. He said, are you going to go too? And the response was, where else would we go? Who else has the words of life? When I say faith, that's what I'm referring to. Um, belief and faith go hand in hand, but faith is a little bit deeper than belief. Faith is that connection. Faith is the covenant vow. For better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, I'm not going anywhere. Faith is what uh, Ruth said to Naomi, where you go, I go. Where you stay, I stay. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Uh, so when you hear me referring to faith, that's what I mean. If Adam had followed the command of God in the garden, it would have been an act of faith, an act of faithfulness to God. And so in those terms, this covenant of works, although different from the covenant of grace that we experience because we have fallen, um, it's not so otherworldly that we can't comprehend it because it too would have been from faith. And it is faith um, that brings us into the kingdom. It is that connection to Christ who has met the conditions of our covenant. So I just wanted to point that out because I know that that can be a, a point of contention. So there was the covenant of redemption in eternity past among the Trinity. There's the covenant of works made with Adam. Adam stood as a representative, uh, a federal head, a federal representative of mankind. He fell, he disobeyed, and that covenant of works was broken. And immediately thereafter is instituted a covenant of grace, which we see figured um, early on in the promise that God makes to Eve when he says, your seed will crush the head of the serpent. Of course, that is a prophecy of Christ. And so early on, before the law, before Abraham, right there in the garden, even as the curse of sin is being given to them, there is the covenant of grace. So that covenant then extends all the way into the present day. And we see various iterations, various expressions of that covenant. Again, this is a, a chief disagreement between dispensationalists and covenant theologians. Now, you will hear dispensationalists talk about various covenants that God makes with his people. But they, for the most part, view those as, for lack of a better word, unconnected uh, and disjointed, kind of separately existing. But the covenant theology viewpoint 
is that all of these covenants we see in the Old Testament and in the New Testament are expressions of that covenant of grace that God makes with his people. And so to talk a little bit more about that, we want to send it over to David. Yeah, so um, when you get into, you know, when we talk about these covenants, it's important to, to kind of define, okay, what, are we, what do we mean when we say covenant, right? And um, at, the, at a very basic level, a covenant is a relationship that is entered into by two parties, two or more parties, um, and it's usually you're bound by an oath. You make, it's, you make a promise, right? One of the ways that we see this in our culture oftentimes is there's really two. One is, you know, deep and, and very meaningful, and the other one's not as meaningful. Um, but one is um, uh, you make, sometimes there are neighborhoods that have covenants, right? So basically you're saying, okay, if I'm going to live and own a home in this neighborhood, um, there are certain things that I will do and certain things that I won't do. Um, and so you are agreeing with the group that I'm not, you know, if I build a, if I build a building in my backyard, it's going to roughly match every other building in the neighborhood or at least my home. Right. So that's sort of a basic, you're just making an, you're entering into an agreement with everyone around you. The other, one of the other ways to look at it is, uh, and it's really more poignant and deeper, um, is marriage. Right. And so you're making a covenant with the person, with your spouse, um, a, a variety of different things. You're essentially saying, I will selflessly love you regardless of how you act, right? Um, I'm making this oath to you. I am bound to you. And the other person is making that promise back uh, to, to um, back to you. And then obviously from a Christian perspective, we view that one as a picture of the way that Christ loves his people, the church. But we also understand that the Holy Spirit and, and or God is really who is uniting those two people together. Um, so at a basic level, that's essentially what a covenant is, is an oath bound relationship. Um, when we see covenants um, in the Bible, um, the kind of at a fundamental level, it's where God is entering into relationship with humankind, um, and He is binding Himself to the promises that He makes to His people. Um, so, and we'll, we'll kind of get in, into that um, in a minute. So, there are several main covenants um, that are made by God. Um, underneath the covenant of grace that we talked about. So we already talked, so Dusty already mentioned the, the covenant of works in which God um, essentially has Adam and Eve in the garden pre-fall in a perfect state. Um, and they are simply tasked that they can, they have free roam over the earth at this point in time. The only stipulation is, is that they do not eat of the fruit um, in the garden of good and evil. Dustin. Um, <clears throat> just as a, I don't know. Some people don't think that's that's actually a thing. I, th I think. Um, and within covenants, there are covenant signs, which I'm sure David will get to. Um, Calvin uh, points to the tree of life uh, b pre-fall being like the covenant sign uh, within that. So if you know if you're knowledgeable about covenants at all, you were like, "Oh, I wonder if this is a covenant." Yeah, sure. He gave the command, but what's you know what's the sign? Uh, people, like I said, people have argued that the tree of life uh, was that. So, 
Yeah, just a little yeah. side note. I'm glad that you actually said that because I, I remember you mentioned that the other day and I completely forgot about that, so thank you. Um, and yeah, and covenants oftentimes are marked by some sort of sign. Um, and so we'll kind of get into that in a minute when we talk about these different covenants. But God makes uh, essentially makes this covenant with Adam and Eve that they have free roam. Um, they are given, you know, they, they are fulfilling their purpose, living in perfection. The only stipulation is, the only boundary is, is they do not take of the or eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil um obviously the serpent you know deceives uh eve who then turns to adam who um and they both eat and so immediately they plunge um as a representative of all humankind throughout the ages adam uh plunges uh all humankind into the curse that comes along with the breaking of that covenant dusty yeah, let's take a moment while we're there to talk about Adam functioning as a representative and what that means. That's really important later on to understand Christ. Um, I say that because Adam is the source of a lot of jokes and a lot of grief. You know, we talk about, well, if if Adam hadn't have done that, we would all still be in the garden. We place a lot of blame on him as though we didn't have anything to do with that. So talk a little bit and, and we can dialogue about this but talk a little bit about what it means to be a federal representative um and how that affects us yeah um and i do i do hope it's it's a, more of a dialogue about about this particular point um because I, I actually this whole idea of a federal head or a federal representative or um federalism within theology because federalism is also a civic term but federalism within theology uh, is i'm very new to that concept actually um although i think all of us um who've been uh familiar with the bible for a certain length of time would probably we we remember the scriptures that talk about uh you know the first adam and the second adam and so that you have the first adam who's adam of eden and you have the second adam who's christ um so we're familiar with it without knowing like those terms um but essentially a federal head and it's actually um and we talked about this in, in our community group it's actually a good thing that god um treats us uh by way of this whole federal head thing. Um, and, and I'll get to that a little bit later. But essentially, Adam is the representative, the embodiment um, of all of humankind, right? And so when God makes his covenant with Adam and Eve, when he makes his covenant with Adam, he is we are being represented by um, Adam. And so all the promises of the covenant to Adam apply to us. And so if Adam had obeyed, if Adam had been faithful, um, we would have been the re- re- uh, recipients of the blessing that comes with that, with the, with the, the faithfulness or the keeping of that particular covenant. Right. Um, you want to chime in? Well, it, and you may have already been going here, but just to bring it down to our level, um, we are broadcasting from America, and so we are given a, a, a little bit of a glimpse into that, um, the idea of federal federalism and representation. So, again, this is not a civics lesson, uh, but it behooves us to study a little bit about civic federalism and representative uh, 
government and how that works. In America, we're not strictly a democracy. It's not every single person votes for every single thing. We have elected representatives. And so the idea there is that we are sending people on our behalf to vote on things, to express opinions, to say things. And so when my representative is in Congress, when he or she speaks, he or she is speaking for me. And so a decision that he or she makes, although I myself did not make it, affects me and is representative of me and applies to me. Um, and so we have kind of a unique way of understanding how that works in America, if we understand how our government actually does work, which a lot of people don't. Um, but that's kind of what you see in Scripture. So that's it's important to take the time to, to wrestle with that and to, to put that into perspective so we can understand it. Um, because a lot, of, a lot of the time we think just generally like, well, I didn't eat the fruit, so why, why should that affect me? All right, so um, I think, I mean, maybe I'm wrong, uh, but in this example of if, uh, people in America electing representative heads, um, yes, them p voting is them representing, representing you, whether or not you necessarily would have voted for that thing or not, right? They, they could just be like, you know, now that I'm here, I'm going to make a decision that maybe most of the people who voted for me aren't going to like and probably not get reelected, but I mean, <clears throat> um, but whereas I think, I mean, and again, I could be wrong. I think if any of us, though, would have been in the same position as Adam, we all would have still taken the fruit. Anyways, so I, so what do you think about that? Do you think if any one of us would have also been in, in that position, uh, we would have also taken the fruit? Or what? Well, yes, that, that's the point. And, of course, the, the reason that the analogy breaks down when it comes to civic government it's just it's just because of um how humans work but the idea the the plan uh of civic federalism and the plan for our government is that these people are supposed to represent us they're supposed to do what we would do if we were there uh, and of course we know that that's not what happens all the time people go rogue and they make deals and they they make decisions and vote on things that we ourselves would not vote on even though we elected them to represent us um but my point is that by design that's what it's supposed to do they're supposed to represent they're supposed to do the thing that we would have done if we were there and of course when you get into things like um electoral colleges and congress and all of this stuff the idea was that back then you just couldn't you couldn't all be there to voice your opinion and so it was helpful to have these people there to represent you and so that that's the point we have that as an illustration of how this whole federal head thing works so adam made the choice that we all would have made it's uh, and it's important to talk about that because that's how um, th that carries over when we say we are all under a curse. And we talked about this last season. 
<clears throat> when we talked about total depravity, it's not just saying that we all commit sins, but we are all in sin. We are in the condition of sin because of uh, the choices of our federal head, which was Adam. Uh, it's not that his commission of sin, uh, of a sin, means that we are committing individual sins ourselves, although that is true. It's his condition, uh, his choice of sin puts that, it imputes that condition of sin to us because he was our representative. And I know that for some people that can sound like splitting hairs, but that, that's how that works. That we are under the condition of sin because he, as our representative, as our federal head, put us in that condition. And it doesn't excuse us. We would have made the same choice. But that's how that works from a from a contractual and, and legal standpoint. It's really um, helpful to understand. Like when we understand that, it makes the second Adam and that and him in Christ, you know, being our federal head, it makes us, um, it allows us to understand that a lot more uh, because in the same way, you know, we are, when, when, when Paul in Romans talks about, you know, that you, that he's using like legal terminology, you know, he's saying like you were in Adam, but now you are in Christ. And to be in Christ means that we now have a new nature, right? And that's, and that's what we, I mean, that's what salvation is. If you understand, and we, you know, go to season one, we understand this rightly, that we come to faith, you know, it's by God's grace through faith uh, that we're saved. It's not something that we did. Um, so we we receive the righteousness of God. Whenever we become a Christian, the way that we are made right before God is we receive Christ's righteousness. It's not our own righteousness. We don't have our own righteousness. And so that righteousness was obtained by Jesus when he kept uh, you know, he lived sinlessly and perfectly. He kept the law. And so now the way he's able to, and we'll get into this in a minute, but the way he's able to offer us eternal life is because he is our representative. He uh, lived the the perfect uh, life, sinless life. He attained that, uh, you know, everlasting life. And then he pays the penalty for our sin. And so now he has then made that righteousness Christ's righteousness is now available to us when uh, we come to faith um, now too, and so all the benefits and all the all the benefits of the of of the you know of Christ extend to us, um, and so when when God looks at us, He's seeing Jesus, He's seeing Christ's righteousness, um, and so it's so at first hearing, especially to like American eyes or eyes, at first hearing through your eyes, uh, at first hearing um, that whole idea of. Uh, of a federal head and, and Adam, you know, making that decision and it attributing it to us now can seem kind of abrasive, you know, and so, but in reality, it's actually a really good thing that that's how God or orchestrates things. You know, it's not that, that God just magically did it. It's, he's always, you know, he's always, acted in this way. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's not just changing like stuff up and I'm just going to magically do this thing. It's how he has designed things to, to operate. And again, that's, uh, that's super important to the 
covenant theology hermeneutic, meaning the covenant theological way of interpreting scripture, seeing one unified theme throughout all of scripture that God behaves in one way, that he is the same yesterday, today, and forever, that he does not have different rules for different times and for different people, but that in all times, with all people, he is behaved in this one way that we've seen more and more of throughout history. So this whole thing about Christ being our representative uh, is not new. The whole thing about Adam being our representative is not new. Um, so that that's an important distinction that that we hold to with covenant theology is that God is the same throughout and he relates to man with with the same ways and through the same structured covenants. Right. Um and and honestly that should just be comforting <laughs> more than any you know it's it's comforting to know that our God uh doesn't change that he doesn't change the rules. Um and that's one of my main kind of Aside from the the eschatology side of dispensationalism, that's one of my kind of pet peeves, I guess, about it. Is it seems like, at least, no, though Dusty's made it clear in previous episodes, they would not explain it this way. They wouldn't say it this way. But it seems like the rules change, and uh, my personality type does not jive with that well. Um, so it's 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 comforting to be able to trust in that fact that God operates the same way throughout throughout uh, Scripture. Um, but yeah, so there's that covenant of, of works, and then, so we, we fail, Adam fails, we fail, um, the fall occurs, probably the, the worst thing um, that could ever happen happens. We, all humankind is then separated from the, the good uh, communion with, with God. Um, and so God's response, though it's not, uh, it's not like he didn't know this was going to happen, um, but his response to that human failure is to enter into relationship um, through through this what we would call broadly um, the covenant of grace, but it's in these these kind of subservient um, or subsequent um, covenants. And so we would call this. Some people call it the creation covenant. You can call it the the Adamic covenant or the covenant with Adam. And so he makes right there in, in Genesis chapter three. He essentially God makes. Um, a messianic prophecy right at the get-go. And he says um, to to them, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. Um, and he says, you shall bruise his heel, but he shall bruise or crush your head. He's talking to the serpent. He's essentially saying this, Satan or uh, evil is going to inflict temporary minor damage to Christ and Christ is going to crush death. Right, and so right there in Genesis chapter three, at the very beginning of the Bible, um, you see Jesus written all over it, and so God immediately his response is to um, enter into relationship with these fallen human beings, um, where he makes this uh, promise, and it's it's really um, an unconditional promise. There's not really a whole lot there that um, they have to uphold. He's essentially prophesying their the humankind's redemption. Right, um, and so they fail to keep that that uh, what we call Edenic uh, or Edemic 
or excuse me, Enoch um, covenant, that, that covenant of works, they fail. And so he institutes this, the beginning of this covenant of grace um, with Adam. And so they, uh, he, he prophesies their human redemption. And so history sort of goes on um, throughout the Bible. The next large covenant is with, he makes with Noah. Right, and so if you're familiar with the Bible, you you read there in, in Genesis that humankind expands, it grows, um, the the earth becomes exceedingly wicked. The Bible says that people that every even intention and thought in their heart was evil, just all the time, um, and that really the only righteous people, um, the only people that you know feared God or or knew God, um, were Noah and his family. And so God decides to um, judge the earth and wipe out um, everyone, basically, except for Noah and his family. And so Noah trusts God, um, and because Noah, God had commanded Noah to make the ark, to, or to you know to build the ark to get on, um, and so essentially Noah trusts God. He he's faithful to God um, and trusts Him, and God judges the earth. And so they go through the that huge global event of the flood, and after that gets after that's done after the 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 ark lands and they are they then get off the ark. God essentially makes this promise with uh, with Noah and really through with all uh, humanity, which was everyone gathered there, um, that he would never again flood the earth, and um, he does. Um, the, the intent there is for them to go into into the earth and to multiply and for the human race to basically move on from this point. Um, and But that's it. There's not really any uh, command given there. There's not really any curse. He's just simply saying, he's making a promise, I'm never again going to flood the earth. I'm never again to just judge uh, the earth. Um, some people would say that the command to go and you know, it, he reiterate he reiterates the thing that he said to uh, Adam and Eve. So that in and of itself is kind of command, but a, like it's a mixture of command and blessing, like that dualism, I guess, of them being the same thing. Um, so I don't, I don't know that I think that there's not necessarily a command there. Yeah, that that's really the only that's really the only command there. Um, which is again like a reiteration to what he tells Adam and Eve, um, and there's no, uh, there's no like curse or repercussions for not uh, doing that. He's simply saying go and do this, which is really a natural. They're human beings, right? And so they're 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 gonna multiply. <laughs> they're they're married couples, and and it's just gonna happen. Um, and so there's not like this huge do these things or this will happen. Um, so. Yeah, I, I yeah, I definitely wouldn't say. I think I did say there's not really a um a command. There is a command. It's just a reiteration of a former command and there's no like repercussions for not doing that. Yeah, it's just not conditional. It's a foregone conclusion that they are going to do those things. Right. There's like yeah, you're right. There's no curses. Um but if there was some, it would just be the blessing that they're missing out on by not following the commands that God gave them. So like again, blessing and command. So, yeah, I think it's important too. And we kind of had this conversation before we we started the episode off off record. Um, that none of the even throughout the Bible, not related to like these covenants necessarily or directly related to these covenants. All the commands of God 
um, all the instruction of the Bible is not, like God does not rob us of anything that's ultimately for our good, right? And so it's really kind of, a, you're doing yourself a disservice to look at any of the commands um, of Scripture, any any call to holiness as a list of, I need to do all these things, um, even though I really want to sin, even though I want to do this, that, and the other, I really just, I have to, I'm supposed to, you're really kind of doing yourself a disservice. Um, you do need to, like, you, you do need to be holy. Um, you do need to not do certain things and do other things, um, but you also have to understand that, one, as a Christian, that is not, you can't manipulate God, <laughs> so don't do them to earn salvation, because you can't. Uh, you're, you're going to be crushed by the weight of that. And then two, all those things are ultimately for your good. When God commands his people, we kind of talked about this, when God commands the uh, the, the Hebrew people, um, the nation of Israel, to not eat pork, right? That seems really weird or shellfish. We know from modern medicine that eating a lot of pork and shellfish is not really the best for you, health-wise. Like, th- that's just a very, like, base level, like, like bottom level basic fact, right? Um, but still, that's that's a blessing. There's a health benefit. There's literally a health benefit um, to that. When he talks about when he gives the commands and the law about letting the earth, uh, the earth, wow, letting the earth rest, right? Um, the Sabbath years and the in the in the crops and stuff. We practice crop rotation now, but that would probably have seemed kind of weird um, to them at that time. But he's saying let the earth rest, right? It'll be it'll be better for your crops. Like if you if you let the earth rest, things like that. God, it's it's a blessing. He's commanding those things, but he's not commanding it to be this overbearing tyrant. God, that's just not who God is. All of these things are the default for creation. They are instructions from the creator and from the designer. Um, that we have to keep track of this, especially as as we get into the Mosaic Covenant and read some of the. You know, as we're reading the laws and Levitic, Leviticus and things like that, um, it's these are the way things are supposed to be. Now, there there are some distinctions when you get into some of the minutia, but for the for the most part, the the broad view of of all of the commands that God gives, and especially the ones that Christ reiterates in the New Testament, this is how it's supposed to be. Our natural state is not the natural state. That That's the thing. When Christ gives us a new nature, he's restoring our original nature. We have to keep that in mind. Jesus is the default, the, uh, the chief man. He, although he is God, he is the, the chief representation of what man should be. That's why the wind and waves obeyed him. Uh, Jesus performed miracles, and of course he was God in the flesh, but the wind and waves, I believe, obeyed him because he was fulfilling the original covenants that, that God expected us to fulfill. The, the earth was under the stewardship of man, but we lost that when we did not keep the covenant. But Christ, the wind and waves obeyed him. All of earth not only obey him, but it says cries out for restoration. So our natural state is not our natural state. We are we are cursed. We are um we've drifted away. 
So these rules, these regulations, they're not arbitrary. They're not here to twist us into unnatural lifestyles um, that are un that are meant to just be uncomfortable and cumbersome. It's just like setting a broken bone. It may feel painful, but it's because it's being set right. So it's important to keep that in mind. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think sometimes we like to, we look at specifically when you're talking about the Jesus um, nature, basically obeying him. I think we, I think we, a lot of people look at that as like this, just magic, right? Like he just has this magic, but it, it really is. He's operating in that. Uh, pre-fall uh power or pre pre-fall state um so yeah thank you um so as the story progresses um the the next big covenant and this is probably in a lot of ways like the big uh covenant and it's also um sometimes probably one of the most dramatic uh covenants as well it's the, the covenant that god makes um with abraham and so um you know humanity progresses um, as one human race, uh, we begin as humans to try to uh, shirk God. He says, go and fill the earth and subdue it, and we're not doing that. The Tower of Babel kind of happens. That's kind of like the signature of, of man's unwillingness um, to obey what God had commanded. And so God splits the, the nations and gives different um, languages and completely just thwarts that plan um, of, of humankind. And so we have... We have you know, these different nations and peoples. And so God then calls after some time, um, a man called Abram at this time, he's called Abram and he's, he tells, um, Abram to, to go and he's, he's giving him a land and he's going to give him offspring and that he's going to be his God. That's sort of the short and condensed version. Um, so fast forward, he, uh, eventually changes his name to Abraham and the Lord promises to Abraham, um, really, three things, that he's going to give him um, a land that we know as, as Canaan. Um, he's going to give him um, offspring. Um, not only that, but he's actually going to be the father of many nations, and that through all through his offspring, the nations will be blessed. Now, we understand that blessing of the nations to be the person of uh, Jesus Christ. There's actually a, a particular, uh, in Galatians 3, we already talked about it, that um, he, he says, through your offspring, like one, through one of your offspring, the nations will be blessed, and we understand that to be to be Jesus. Um, just to play the idiot here, <clears throat> uh, why, why did God promise Abraham offspring? Why was that important? Um, so yeah, so he promised Abraham offspring primarily because why it would even be important to him is he, he could not. Uh, him and his wife could not have children. As a matter of fact, they were actually very old when God um, makes this this promise to them. And so it, on the outside, it looked, uh, you know, impossible. And in a way, without God, it, it was, in fact, impossible. They were well advanced in age. He basically at one point says, my body is as good as dead. Um, and you're, you know, at, to his wife, Sarah, you're not exactly a spring chicken either. Um, and so that was very important to him that, that he have children he was not able to. And so God makes this promise to him that he will make him not only give him children, but that you're going to, that his children are essentially that his offspring are going to be the 
the center point of human history, right? Like, and not only that, but a particular child, your offspring, not offsprings, um, that the nations will be blessed uh, by by your offspring. Um, and so he makes this covenant with, with um, Abram or Abraham, um, and it sort of unfolds over time, like over some chapters. It's not like everything happens all right there. Um, but there's this kind of dramatic scene in uh, Genesis chapter 15 um, where God gives um, Abraham a vision. Um, and essentially, they're having a covenant. There's this covenant ceremony. I'm not going to go into all the details about it, um, but essentially it's this, that there's this, um, it's a pot of water, isn't it? Um, so there's this pot of water that so, that God uh, causes to, um, representing God actually, walks in between uh, pieces of, cut up pieces of animal. Um, and it sounds really sketchy and weird, especially to Western ears. It sounds very freaky and like, what in the world? And essentially what, what, God is saying is this. He's making this promise to Abraham, and he's essentially saying, if I fail to keep my part of this promise, if I fail to deliver on my promise to give you offspring, to give you this land, to give you this offspring, and that the nations will be blessed through this offspring, what has been done to this animal, let this be done to me. So, pause for effect. The God, the Almighty God, uh, the Creator God of all the universe, is saying and making this promise, and He's saying, "If I do not do it, let me be torn apart like this animal has been torn apart." Um, now that's a particular uh, type of covenant relationship, um, and there were plenty of um, ancient in the ancient world covenants that were made like that. A lot of times. Um, this type of ceremony ta- would take place where they're saying, I promise this, and if I don't hold up on this, if I, and I think it's called, um, what are those terms? Suzerain and vassal. Yeah, Suzerain and, and, and vassal. And so essentially a, a greater power would subject a weaker power into treaty. And this weaker power would be like, if you don't destroy us, we will be, we'll pay homage to you. We'll, uh, we won't revolt against you and we'll be a vassal state, um, subservient to you. And so the, and they would say, if I don't, if we rebel, like the king or the representatives of that nation and that people would say, if we rebel or if we don't hold up this promise, um, then let me, let us, let me be torn apart. Um, and the, Ancient world could be very brutal, and so we actually know that those types of things happen. You can take it on pretty good historical authority that there were particular leaders of certain nations that entered into relationships like this that didn't hold up their bargain, and so um, bad, 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 bad things physically happened to them. Um, and so when God makes this promise and he performs, essentially performs in a vision, this ceremony to Abraham, uh, to Abraham, it's as sure as done, right? It, it, this is a a strong promise. This is a sure thing, and you have to you have to see it through messianic eyes. Um, again, this is a the, the all these covenants that we're talking about are simply uh, outworkings of that of that covenant of 
uh, grace and a, really the covenant of redemption even. Um, and so when we see this, it's G- he's talking about Jesus. This offspring, the blessing of these nations is, is Jesus. So we are getting, even in the beginning chapters of, of Scripture, we are seeing this is about Jesus. This book is about Jesus. The story is about Jesus. God is going to accomplish these these things. Right. And so I, in a way, I would call that, just from the offspring part, I would call this a kind of like prophecy because he ultimately is talking about Jesus being the offspring uh, in the same way that back in Eden, you know, the the one who's going to stomp out this, the serpent was going to be Jesus as well. And so, and like to his, to David's point of, you have to look through it with messianic eyes. Um, there's a um, type of, I guess it would be considered a hermeneutic, um, that the reality of the prophecy is what um, is what the prophecy itself needs to be subjected to. Um, so, you know, just to kind of reinforce what David was saying, you know, following that uh, way of thinking, then... Yes, it does behoove us to, for sure, look at this through messianic eyes with Jesus in mind. Yeah, um, and 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 really, that's again. I mean, again, basically saying what you're saying. It, this is one of the benefits to this particular, um, you know, theology. This inter- particular interpretation because it it naturally uh, strings together this story of redemption. Um, that all these things aren't just random things that sort of happened and that different things happen at these different times and things are different, but this is God's unfolding work uh, throughout this time. Um, I also want to point out, too, um, these promises about the blessing and, the, and that he would have a people. Um, these things are coming to um, believers of, in, of any time, right? Um, so... When and I'm just going to read that this is actually from um, an, an article, actually, but it says Abraham was like a new Adam, and Canaan was to be new Eden, where God dwelt with his people. And as the children of Abraham trust in the Lord and obey his promises, or and obey him, the promises would be fulfilled. Um, so I also want to point out Genesis chapter 15, where the ceremony takes place. It says in, in verse 6, it says, And he believed the Lord, and he, he counted it to him as righteousness. Um, so all these things are happening happening with um, believers um, as they trust the, the, the fulfillment of the promises and the promises um, are to people who trust in God, right? It belongs to, um, we are as believers in Christ, believers in God, um, in, in his redemption, like we're, we're trusting him and we're the recipients of um, those covenant promises. And I think that's important to, to sort of see that through that, that lens. And Paul points out later on here that this covenant was made with Abraham before the law came. And that's super important for us because of what, what we understand on this side of the cross, what the purpose of the law was. And so the context of Paul talking about this is that the law was not the way that these covenant promises were meant to come to us because they were made before even the law came. And so the law was never meant to bring us in particular life 
and to bring these promises to us. God had already made that promise to us in Abraham. Uh, it, he had already made it in Eden. Um, he had already made it in eternity past. So here chronologically, it's just, again, important to point out that God is already making uh, this covenant promise with us before the law has come. Salvation is apart from the works of the law, huh? And he made it with Abraham before Abraham was circumcised. I believe Paul points that out, out as well. Of course, he's he circumcised soon thereafter, but um, it's important to note the order there, that the covenant promise was made before the law and before circumcision so that we know that it is through faith and it is his right. spiritual descendants and through the promise that these covenant promises come and not through these works and not through these acts. Right. And that, that part about the order of those events is a, is a huge, is a huge part. Um, so that act of, of circumcision um, is a sign of that covenant. So God commands, um, and th this is chapters later, and I think it's in chapter 17, uh, where God uh, commands um, that, Abraham and his and all the males of his household and um, and that that is not just his offspring. He's saying anyone who's a part of your household, if you, you got male servants who are not you know ethnically the same as you, or maybe they are, but they're not related to you. Um, he's saying they all are going to if they're going to be a part of this people that I'm creating. Um, then they're going to take this sign, and it's just to be a marker. It's also an act of faith, because if you know what circumcision is and know what it involves, and you're an adult and not a baby, you have to really be trusting, right? Um, so even in that, it's sort of a, an, act of, an act of faith. Um, but he's making that promise and making that sure promise of redemption before they ever do any of that. And the relevance of that sign, too, just if you've ever wondered, I often wondered, why that? Uh, of all the signs and things that you can come up with, this was a promise that God was making to Abraham specifically concerning his offspring. So this is specifically concerning Abraham's ability to reproduce. And so right there, um, he puts a sign to remind Abraham uh, that even his reproduction is governed by God's promises. Right. Um, so as the story progresses, um, God, then the, the next, that next covenant is the covenant that God makes with the, the people of Israel sort of proper, right? Uh, it's the Mosaic law. He gives the, the law to, to Moses. And so, uh, the people of Israel, they progress, they become, um, throughout several chapters of the Bible, entire books of the Bible, um, they become the, uh, become slaves in Egypt. Um, and God through Moses leads them as a people out of the land of Egypt into, into, uh, the land of Canaan, um, Moses unfortunately doesn't get to see that reality, but um, they they stop in uh, Sinai, um, at the mountain, and so God uh, Moses goes up um, to to tabernacle or to commune with God, um, and during that time God gives um, Moses uh, the the Ten Commandments and subsequently uh, the law. He sort of explainifies um, some things. Um, and so he makes a covenant with, with them, and he's essentially saying this. I'm going to be your God, and you're going to be my people. 
and here are all the things that you are going to do. And he promises them blessings if they keep it. Uh, primarily, one is you know just that relationship with God, but there's also all these blessings that come with it. This blessing of the land um, being a, a really big, important part of that. Um, but then he also gives them, um, and of course you would have to read all of this law, but um, he gives them cursings if they uh, don't keep the law. And one of the big, uh, huge, his biblically historical events um, that if they don't keep the law is eventually that they would be um, taken out of the land and that they would go into exile. And we understand that to be the Babylonian captivity, which takes place a long time after this. Um, but he makes this covenant um, with with Israel to solidify like his his people and he gives this this law um it's important to note here that dispensationalists they acknowledged of course they they use the language of covenants as well and traditionally they believe that this particular covenant at sinai uh they maintain that israel should have rejected this covenant um and, and you will see that as a note in some study Bibles, which ones I'm not exactly sure, but um, Schofield being one of them. Uh, but they, they maintain that Israel should have heard this and said, uh, no, Moses, we don't, we don't want a works-based covenant. Of course, we understand as covenant theologians, this falls under the covenant of grace, even though it sounds like works, uh, which we'll get into a little bit more later. But, um, but they maintain that Israel should have said, no, we don't want this covenant. We want just grace, which baffles me, honestly, just to, to take a step away from the high theological discussion that's just bananas to me to suggest that they could have they couldn't even look at the mountain that Moses came down from but they were going to say to him no I don't think so I think we'll let's try again let's go back to the to the table and see if you can get us a better deal I don't think so but that's the traditional dispensational view is that uh, they shouldn't have agreed, they shouldn't have ratified this covenant because they should have recognized that they couldn't keep it. Right, right. And agreed, 100%. Like, who are you, oh man, to answer back to God? <laughs> and all that stuff. Um, it, so, right here, um, covenant, some covenant theologians will be like, yeah, no, the this... They have their own parentheses, I guess, if you will. Uh, the covenant of Moses is purely a covenant of works. It's kind of like God reinstated the covenant of works before the fall um, for uh, Israel in the desert. But if you go back and read the like, first beginnings of the chapter uh, of the book of Exodus, um, Moses is like, yeah, or... Moses writes that, in not so many words, that this is the covenant that God made with Israel. Because they're going to the land, or not Israel, that God made with Abraham. Because they're going to the land that 
God promised Abraham. So I don't if somehow if you can reconcile that this isn't a continuation of of uh, the promise to Abraham. I I don't know. I mean I'm sure they would they could do a good job at it. I'm sure they've been <laughs> doing it for a while now. But also since it is a continuation of that and I f I feel like this picture kind of uh, and later covenants kind of does the same thing. Um, it kind of like starts off in a small line and then gets to Abraham, opens up a little bit, you know, straightens back out, gets to Moses, opens up a little bit more. We're getting like a, a more full picture of God through these covenants. Um, and, and then this particular one, you know, what it looks like to be holy in front of God, like that, you know, there are multiple reasons for the law. I mean, like the weight of sin. Um, but again, just to get back to my point. One of those is to show how hard it is to be holy. So, yeah, and and we would agree. And even, I mean, even people who would not necessarily consider themselves to be, you know, covenant theologians or whatever. Almost everybody, I can't tell you how many people I've heard say, you know, the word, the 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 law was not ever meant. Uh, to save us, right? Um, it's meant to point out. It's it's actually meant to convict us of of, of sin. Um, it shows us if you ever just start reading the law, you just crack open, let's say Leviticus, um, for instance, where a lot of it's contained, especially the ceremonial parts, um, and you were just to begin reading that, it's incredibly dense and tedious, as is the law, right? I mean, it's 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 meant to just show us just how enable we are um, and it's really meant to be a tutor to that to that fact um, but at the same time following especially I mean you could say that the Mosaic law is summed up in the Ten Commandments right like the, the big main points of it um, there are people who would adhere to the Ten Commandments that don't believe in Jesus um, so there's two things from that one just because you agree with the Ten Commandments doesn't mean that you're a Christian um, but also um, that there are good things that everyone can acknowledge from this law, right? There are there, the blessings are simply that holiness, that holy life, and we kind of talked about this earlier. But that holiness and that holy life benefits us. It's almost like it's written on our hearts or something. I don't know. Yeah, uh, we we have that vague awareness um, of that as human beings, whether we realize it or not. Um, but though there are good things that come um from that like again god's not trying to restrict us from anything that's ultimately for our good when he says that we need to um not murder like that's that's a good thing that that we can all agree to that let's not murder um if if we can help it let's 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 when he talks about the sabbath rest i think in our modern culture we can acknowledge that some a little bit of rest is actually a good thing. Why the church does a terrible job at Sabbath rest, I don't understand. But anyways, that's a different discussion for a different day. Yeah, and it's it's good and important to point out that the law does not bring us life, but that is not because of a flaw in the law. And I think that Paul, I think that Paul points this out. Um, you know, the law was not meant to save us. It cannot save us, but it's not because the law is bad. It's because we are. We are the broken one again in this equation. We, we keep coming 
uh, we keep coming up on this issue and this theme, which is, of course, the point. We are the broken one in this picture. If we were perfect and fully obedient to the law, it would, uh, it would save us and it would bring us life. And, of course, we see that represented in Christ. Christ followed the law. He obeyed the law. And there were blessings that were given to him. God raised him from the dead. Um, he earned his his position. He was God, but he was also man, and he earned his position. He earned the right. He earned his priesthood. He earned his resurrection in a way that we could not because we were already fallen and unable to keep the law. Um so then this this next uh, covenant, he makes this covenant with the people of Israel. And so the history of uh, the people of Israel goes on um, and they develop into into a nation. Um, there's some that history, their history sort of unfolds and it's a long and sordid tale. So you would have to refer to most of the Old Testament books um, to see all of that. But um, essentially this next um, the next covenant that is made um, with, with mankind is the, what we would call the Davidic covenant is made with, with, um, uh, with David. And it's sort of, a most directly connected, um, to the covenant that he originally makes, um, with, with Adam. It's, it's in a sense, because these are all covenants of grace, they're really in a way all messianic covenants. Um, but the covenant that he makes with um, David is essentially uh, the promise of an eternal uh, reign or an eternal throne, and a, a, a essentially that this offspring that the nations would be blessed through, um, the offspring of Abraham was also going to be one a son of David, um, and that he would, uh, you know, be this, you know, the king, the skull, the snake crusher. Um, and that he would reign, um, that his throne would be an eternal one. So he, um, th through this promise, there's not, in this particular um, covenant, like pretty much all covenants, there are certain, um, you know, conditional parts and unconditional parts. Um, they're really the, the big thing with the nation of Israel is that these kings who are supposed to be, uh, you know, who this, essentially this Messiah is going to come through, uh, this conqueror is going to come through, um, is um, the the nation of Israel? They have some good kings and some bad kings, and so essentially the nation of Israel sort of falls apart, right? And they go into um, uh, it looks like essentially from the outside, like how could this promise um of this this king uh come when you have all of these bad, really really bad kings? And there's actually a long period of time, um, essentially even to this day where uh, Israel had no king. Um, eventually, they they are taken over by the Romans, um, and there's this long period of time where um, you know our our Bibles sort of tune out. Doesn't mean God wasn't doing anything or He wasn't saying anything. It's essentially that we have the intertestamental period. Unless you consult dispensationalists, who largely believe that He fell silent for a little while. Yeah, which is a little. A little silly, but we won't get into that. That's a whole different thing. Um, but essentially, that's that's all of those all of those 
uh, covenants are all take place within the, the Old Testament. Um, and then we have the last and essentially sort of the, the final, the, the crescendo of, of the covenants, what we would call the New Covenant. Um, and we really call it the New Covenant essentially because uh, that's what Jesus called it. He said, I, I make a new covenant with you in my blood. Um, and so Israel had sort of, again, true to form, true, true to human nature, had sort of made a mess of every single promise and covenant and didn't uphold their parts of really any of these things. Um, and we sort of see that. And that's, that's really meant this whole this covenant relationship. There's a reason why God makes the covenant, makes the promise, and binds himself to this to this promise, um, and he's the one whom it, it is going to uphold really both both parts. Um, the The scriptures continually point us to the fact that we're not able, uh, that we're just we're gonna we're gonna fail. So Jesus comes on the scene, <laughs> um, and he essentially, and and this is the big part um, with. Uh, with dispensational theology and the, the idea of these covenants, especially in regards to the promises um, made uh, with Israel. But we we would see that the fulfillment of the covenant and the promises with Abraham, um, with Adam, with David, all those things find their fulfillment in the person of Jesus Christ. Uh, we see Jesus in his life um, making uh, completely and perfectly following um, the law. We see him being the fulfillment of that offspring uh, through whom the nations will be blessed. We see him being this eternal king who would reign on on the throne of his father David. Um, we see all those things in the person of Jesus Christ. And so that sort of Jesus is that crescendo um, of of all the all the Old Testament. He is, in fact, the Jewish Messiah who's been prophesied for you know thousands of years. Um, he's the one that it's all pointing to. And we get to be, um, you know, sort of, we get to view that through on this side. We get to see these covenants um, uh, through this side of the cross. We see him being the, that true son of Abraham. Um, he's the true Israel. He's the true David, right? He's the, um, he's the, the true and right uh, thing, you know, object of all these covenants. Right. <clears throat> Agreed, 100%. And to... So, like I said earlier, um, there with each covenant, like there's a little bit more revealed. Uh, with Abraham, God was going to give them the land. With Moses and the Israelites, uh, it's the law is revealed, showing what is required to be holy, and the doctrine of sin and all that. Uh, and the, and with David, that God is sending is going to send a king, right? And and like you said, Jesus is the fulfillment and pinnacle of all those things. And there's even one more mystery that's revealed through Jesus coming, and that's, you know, Paul talks about it in Ephesians chapter 3. Um, I'm just going to read it, 1 through 15. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the sorship of God's grace and uh, that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. 
when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men and other generations as it has been revealed to us, his holy apostles and prophets, by the Spirit. The mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am a, uh, the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone uh, what is plain of the mystery hidden for ages in God, who created all things so that through the church manifold through the church the manifold wisdom of God might not be uh, or might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heaven in the heavenly places. This is according to the eternal purpose uh, that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. So through the new covenant that uh Jesus establishes, uh, it is revealed one more time that there is more, uh, and that, that is that we Gentiles, us four sitting here, uh, get to partake in the gospel and serving Jesus and being called and being saved and getting to be with him forever. So. Yes. <laughs> um, one of the, and I, and I meant this, should have said this earlier, but one of the main um, texts, we don't necessarily like to proof text, but I'm going to just so we're kind of clear about this new covenant. Um, Jeremiah 31, um, 31 through 34 is looked at as one of the main prophecies about this new covenant. He says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the, by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. Uh, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Um, so essentially God is saying he is fulfilling that promise of, I am... I am making for myself a people. Um, he's also promising in this um, that we are going to have a change of nature, right? Um, and not only that, but I think that there's also a little bit of allusion there to um, the Holy Spirit, right? That we are, we are going to be, we are going to have relationship with God beyond what anyone really other people have had in the past. Um, this is a slightly different topic, but I've heard people a lot of times, um, I saw a quotation and, uh, I think it was from a pastor, but he essentially said, I think so many people uh, would say things like, you know, when I get to heaven, I want to go talk to Moses and ask Moses, what was it like to, to see the Red Sea part and to see the pillar of fire and the cloud of smoke and how crazy it, was, it, it would be that Moses would ask back, um, how, how was it that you had the Holy Spirit of God in you, right? And so we, we, we have this promise, like this great promise 
um, and fulfillment in the person of Jesus, that all those promises, all that Old Testament, um, all the, you know, I'm making for myself a people, I'm entering in to the point of, of covenants is to enter into relationship, and we see that fulfillment in the person of Jesus and what he has done. He's obtained um, that everlasting life, that eternal life. He's obtained... Um, you know, access. I think in Romans it says, you know, we have obtained access through faith. Um, so what's that access? It's that relationship with God. And and here's another point of difference with dispensationalism, although this is more of a practical thing and not necessarily a difference in doctrine. Um, this is more how it works its way out in practical living. Often in dispensationalism, there's e there's either a looking backward to the time of the patriarchs, as a, um, like David was saying, as a time of, of awe and wonder that, oh, to be back in those days uh, when God was moving in his people and to see the glory and the splendor of the temple. Um, th that's a, a big thing that you hear with a lot of dispensationalists, especially regarding talk of the end times. You know, oh, to see the glory of the, of the temple, to see... Uh, the glory of God filling the temple or to see the, the majesty of the sacrificial system, which honestly was not majestic. It was gruesome and horrible, but, um, you know, everyone's entitled to their opinion, I guess. But, you know, it's it's either a looking backward to those things or it's a looking forward to some future time uh, in a in a millennial kingdom when Christ will reign on a physical throne and um and nations are bowing down to him and and he's there with with them whereas covenant theologians um reformed people in general by and large look at this present age as the kingdom and uh you know not getting fully into eschatology there are some differing opinions about whether there's a coming millennium or, or whether we're in it now, but, but for the most part, we recognize that in this present age, we have the benefit of knowing Christ, not only in, his, in the scripture, but having the Spirit of God dwelling in us. And so we don't get lost in pining for the old days or pining for the days to come, we're able to take the time daily, today, and recognize that today His law is written on my heart. Today he, his, his dwelling place is with me. He tabernacles with me. And I am today now enjoying the new covenant, which was uh, ratified by the shedding of His blood and by the breaking of his body, and that I, I have that today. Yeah, we um, often forget to realize that the very same spirit, the very same presence that killed a priest if they walked into the Holy of Holies without being purified, or that if um, you were hauling the Ark of the Covenant across the desert and it began to fall and you touched it to try and catch it, it would kill you dead right there. That very same presence is within us right now and we can we can be in contact with it because we've been regenerated and restored and renewed by Jesus. And I mean, what what amazing and awesome power is that that's right inside of us 
and and we in our culture we we forget to live in that we forget to to remember that and consider that and i even think those of us that aren't dispensationalist can get really caught up and just not not embracing that reality we know it and we believe it but we don't we don't really embrace it and um anyway that's a bit of a primer of what's to come i think the you know the the big picture definitely is that god i mean through all these covenants like that again going back to that's what covenants are is 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 relationship um and it reveals the this covenant of grace you know unfolding over this time is it's evident that it's showing the character of god and that he is continually seeking to relate to to his people um, in an in a intimate way. And we see that, again, that crescendo, that culmination in, in Jesus himself, who then, you know, first of all, provides that access through his atoning work on the cross, but also, um, you know, that God eventually just pours out a spirit into us individually. Um, and so it's just that, you know, it, it, it's kind of sad to me that people focus so much on, like what you're talking about, the, you know, the, the reinstating of, like, there, there are things eschatologically um, about dispensational theology that, that talks a lot about, you know, Israel reinstating like the sacrificial system of the temple, rebuilding the temple and all that kind of stuff. And honestly, that's, that's sad. Like I wouldn't look at that and be like, oh, this is a great and glorious thing. That's really kind of sad uh, because you're, you're really going in reverse in a way. Um, God's always sought to dwell among his people. Um, and so again, that's in a, in a kind of a weird distant way, you kind of have to thought, follow the logic here, but it's also another reason why I think the whole replacement theology criticism is kind of silly because you're like, oh, well, you think, you know, the church is so, so much greater and it's completely replacing it. It's really that God has always sought to, to dwell with his people. Right. Even if it meant being in a traveling tent with his people in a desert while he's punishing them, right? he still wanted to be with them. Yeah. Because he, because that's for our ultimate good. And that's what God is seeking. God's not a tyrant. He's not this evil being that's that's just, you know, uh, punishing us for random random things. And He doesn't change the rules either. Um, and so I think that that's one of the such of the benefit of covenant theology is again it's it's you're viewing the Bible through the way in which it structures itself through this unfolding of the of redemption in these covenants. And that's sort of it strings all those things together. There's so many things that we just wouldn't understand otherwise. Um, and so, I mean, that's that's sort of why, you know, we talked about in the very first episode, like, how did you come to know about covenant theology? Like, one of the things I said was, is it just, it, it, it resonated, like, spiritually. Like, it, res- it, it, it was like I saw it, and I'm like, that makes so much sense. Um, yes, this is a good thing. Right, and so that that's one of those major benefits is it is it it structures all those things together, connects all those things together, and you see that unfolding plan of redemption a lot clearer than the really. I'm not trying to be any more harsh, but like the really convoluted, you know, dispensational view with all this happening and this is kind of postponed and this will eventually happen, and it just gets very complicated. And I don't think I don't think that that's the way that God is revealing Himself is in a complicated manner. Um, and I want to backtrack uh, a little bit for a second, just just for clarity, um, because we talk about the new covenant, for example, and we use the language um, in, in Hebrews of the old covenant passing away and the new covenant um, 
and yet we read in the Old Testament and we talk about those covenants after the fall being all part of the covenant of grace. And so that can be a, a bit confusing talking about the old covenant passing away and then there being a new covenant. And yet those are all part of the covenant of grace. Um, and so I, I want to try to take a stab at making that a little bit more clear because again, we're contrasting our belief with, um, other schools of thought that to think about God behaving differently in all these different ways, we believe that it is a unified system. And so one way that, that may be helpful to think about it is um, in the idea of marriage, which of course is woven throughout scripture as a representation of how Christ relates to the church. Um, marriage vows are not conditional. Um, and we talked about this last season, actually, um, when we talk about unconditional election. I made a vow to my wife that um, that I'm with her until I die, um, until death do we part. I did not say until she leaves me. Now, that works itself out practically in my life that I believe because I made a vow before her and before a congregation, ultimately before God, that no matter what she does, if she left me tomorrow and went to be with another person or went across the face of the earth to the other side of the world, whatever, I still made a vow to her that as long as we both live, I remain faithful to my vow. Now, I know that's a little bit controversial and different people fall into different camps when it comes to divorce and separation, things like that. This is my, um, this is what I believe to be, uh, how I can be most faithful to scripture that no matter what, until she dies or until I die, my vow is to be faithful to her, even if she's not in my house anymore and she's gone somewhere else and, and whatever. I didn't, I didn't give any other conditions for that. And so this is actually the picture that we see of Christ and the church, of Christ and Israel. Of course, this is typified in the relationship between uh, Hosea and Gomer. She left him many, many times, and yet he remained faithful. He bought her back. He brought her back over and over again. And so Christ has made this covenant. God has made this covenant of works with us. And the nation of Israel broke it. We broke it over and over again. And yet, he never did. And he didn't condition that grace on our obedience in the first place. Even with the law, when you really study that out, especially in light of what Paul says in Galatians and in Romans. And so, when we talk about a new covenant, imagine using this example with my wife, um, if she had left me, I've not broken my covenant and I'm still remaining faithful to that. But imagine that there has been some kind of reconciliation. And so then we decide to have a ceremony renewing our vows. We are making a new covenant. And yet that new covenant is the original covenant that I made with her, and it's the original covenant that she made with me. And so in that sense, it's not a new covenant, but it is a more perfect covenant. It's It's been ratified by that. 
and again, that's not a perfect analogy. We're, we're not going to find a perfect analogy, but hopefully that helps in understanding how, how, how is it possible that this is a new covenant, and yet also this uh, existing covenant of grace at the same time. That's good. That, that's, that's actually a very good analogy. Look at Dusty with the good analogies. What, what? Um, so, these are probably going to be my final thoughts on this. Um, yeah, yeah, probably my final thoughts on this. So, y'all do what y'all want, but, um, I'm, so, like, sitting here, like, just kind of reflect back to, um, the very first episode of the season where we talked about what covenant theology, covenant theology means to us, means, yeah, um, like sitting here and actually talking about it and fleshing it out more, um, has, has made it mean a lot more to me, like over, like hearing David and Dusty's passion about it and what it means to them. And just understanding that more clearly, uh, has helped me a lot. So I appreciate that. I'm glad that we, cause this isn't all, this isn't just for the people listening. This, this is at least for me, it's, it's a way that I get to be with brothers and community and talk and, uh, understand things more deeply. Um, so yeah, like I, and I really hope that, uh, the same can be said for somebody else listening that we aren't just talking just so we can sound smart this uh, i've heard another podcast um kind of like long distance discipleship if y'all will um so i hope and pray that that this that is the goal of this that you know and through this uh through the understanding of covenant theology at least for me i know it has and i hope for other people christ will be made big and more glorified through it so yeah, I definitely, um, this being able to sit down and like simmer over things and like hash out some things. Um, I mean, we could do it privately. I mean, we, we actually for a few years now prior to even doing this, I mean, we do that anyways. Um, but it definitely, it definitely helps. I think I'm, I feel like I was probably the, I think the one that suggested this topic, um, because I had had a previous interest so it's been helpful to me um, because, like, I'd, I had, like, all these, like, independent, like, sort of things I knew, but I never had just sat down and, like, let's sort of try to trudge through all this stuff. Um, but it's super beneficial. And to be able to sort of do that over a little bit of time um, with other people is very helpful because there's several things that have been talked about that if I arrived at that myself, it would have been very tedious and very like, and we haven't even gone super, super in depth either. I mean, like Dusty had said, like this isn't like a seminary course. Um, but it, but it is very helpful. Um, the one of the, the only other thing just sort of as the last thing is if you are interested, um, in more of like a seminary perspective and you want to go super in depth and super deep with it. Um, one of the resources that helped us a lot is, um, through iTunes, U. Um, the uh, Reformed Theological Seminary, um, part of their distance education program, has a free course um, 
on covenant theology taught by Lingan Duncan. Um, so if you don't know who that is, you probably should. Um, but anyways, he's, he's very passionate about, uh, covenant theology. He loves it. Um, and he sort of did a lot for me because I mean, he, you can tell that he loves it. Um, it is a seminary course. Um, you don't, you do not get signed up for a seminary course necessarily. It's not like you're, you're not paying for anything and you're not like enrolled in a class necessarily, but you have access to his lectures. You have access to the, the reading material if you wanted to purchase books. I mean, it is a seminary course. So if you're wanting that and you're like, man, I, I, there's, I have these questions, go. And if you have time, if you can listen to podcasts or whatever, um, definitely. I mean, it's, it's a free, unless it's changed, it's a, it's a free course that you can have. So um, why not? I mean, like, don't watch that episode of The Mandalorian. Just... No, I'm just, Nicholas is like, no, watch it. No, um, don't, you know, instead of whatever you're doing, you know, make time to, to, uh, to learn something that could be very beneficial. Um, so don't just take our word. We're, we're doing more of like the armchair theologian, uh, version of it. It's really, like we said before, this is really meant to be, uh, some brothers in Christ talking about these things and sort of hashing some things out, things that, are in our in our mind and we want to kind of if it if it can be beneficial as we hope it is that we wanted to make that a little bit more public um so that's really all i have also a a final thought from me um and I, i keep saying this as well i know that we've we've kind of put dispensationalism through the ringer a little bit this season and i just want to reiterate that uh These are not primarily issues of um, soteriology. Uh, It does get a little bit into that, but uh, in no way are we saying that a dispensationalist is not a Christian. I want to be very clear about that. In fact, here's why I want to be clear about that. There's a particular man, I won't name him, but there's a particular man who is uh, all the way, like from his toes to the top of his head, tried and true dispensationalist. Uh, secret rapture, reinstatement of sacrifices, all, all of it, um, died in the wool dispensationalist. And he is responsible, I would say, early on for my love of scripture. I would literally sit at this man's feet listening to him um, lecture about Revelation, about Daniel, um, and while the adults in the room were falling asleep or making excuses to leave, I, as a seven, eight-year-old kid, uh, was finding every excuse to get out of the kids' program, get out of the youth, and come listen to him when he would come speak every year. Um, I loved it. And so, people who follow that, um, that ideology often have a deep and profound love of scripture and a deep and profound desire to mine the depths of scripture. And I don't want to make light of that. And so I believe that God honors the desires in those situations. I just don't happen to agree with them. Um, So I just want to be clear about that. If that's you, I respect you as a brother or sister in Christ. If that's someone you know, I would kind of give to you the, the same kind of um, admonition that Paul gives in Romans 11. Don't be a jerk. Um, so it's important to keep that in mind. Just like we said last season, 
these are the things that we believe. We believe them to be true, but for the love of God, don't be a jerk. You're welcome. Yeah, I would I would strongly second that. Um, we'll we'll talk about this theme more in in seasons upcoming. But one thing that is clear um, in scripture is that all things that were given by God, whether it's wisdom or knowledge or some other gift, we are to use it with love and grace and to build up and to edify. Um, so we're we're not here to tear down. We we do make clear our differences, and we will discuss our differences. But when it's not a a issue, it's not a soteriological issue. Um, we we're disagreeing as brothers. We're disagreeing respectfully, and our aim is to just discuss or or to to build up others through discussion. Um, iron sharpens iron, and um, that's what we're here for. Um, to speak to like what I've gotten out of this series, um, it would just be an, an encouragement for me to, to go and explore some of the tensions in what we've talked about. Um, some of the things about you know defining who's referred to as Israel in different circumstances, and like there there are some tensions there for me. And um, that's okay. I don't mind tension so much. Um, but I, I do have to get to the point. I don't mind tension so much once I become okay with that tension. But it takes effort for me to get okay with that tension sometimes. So um, I look forward to, with a, with a renewed perspective um, and with a greater perspective, to, to go back and study personally and explore some of those tensions and to just really, really see where I settle from that point. All right. And so we will leave you off there, closing out season two of the wannabe inklings. So once again, I've been Dusty. I'm David. And I'm Nicholas. And I am Dustin. Also, just a little preview for next season this time. I promise I won't change it. Because last time I said eschatology, we are in fact talking about the spiritual gifts. So, woot woot. Hopefully, that will get some people hyped. It's gonna get ghosty. Yeah, I know it's a very, very popular subject. So, hope you guys like my voice because you'll hear it more. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, maybe not. Maybe we're changing. So I don't know. <laughs> um, but yes, once again, thank you all for listening. We appreciate it very much. And until next time, bye-bye.